You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Lee Strobel, in his latest book, A Case for Heaven, published by Zondervan in 2021, doesn't just make the case for heaven. He also makes the case for hell, for what he calls the traditional Christian understanding of hell as eternal conscious torment. In this episode of the podcast, I invite two discussion partners and former podcast guests to join me in discussing the case Strobel makes against universalism in The Case for Heaven. My first guest is Stephen Hawes. He grew up in Bolivia as the child of evangelical missionaries. He is a producer of the Christian Universalist documentary Love Unrelenting, as well as the Love Unrelenting YouTube channel with over 230 videos relating to Christian universalism. Scott Clout is the pastor of Zootown Church in Missoula, Montana. He has been helping people through his ministry realize that it's okay to be a Christian and to believe that Christ's victory is powerful enough to secure the final salvation of all. What I'd like to do is to go over the main critiques Lee Strobel directs towards universal salvation or universal reconciliation in his book, The Case for Heaven. And Strobel's interview partner is Christian philosopher Paul Copan. Between Strobel and Copan, they raise a number of challenges regarding Christian universalism. But before we get to that, are there any comments about Strobel or the book in general before we get to the critiques? Stephen, why don't you go ahead and start? Yeah, sure. I mean, there were a number of things that I thought were good in the book. The book emphasizes a lot of stuff that universalists could appreciate and agree with, I think, like how immortality is something people yearn for and it makes more sense of meaning in this life and how we can be conscious beyond the grave, how near-death experiences may confirm some of our understandings of God as pure love and how we bring judgment on ourselves through our selfish actions in this life, how there are objective moral values and signs in nature that point to God as creator, how Christ resurrected from the dead after he was crucified, and even how it's possible our pets may be in heaven, like Scott McKnight talks about for a little bit. Really, most of the book isn't particularly opposed to ideas that most believers in Christian universalism hold to. It's just a portion of it that I have a problem with, right? right. Okay. All right, Scott, is there anything you'd like to say? Well, I do agree with him that, uh, first off, when I was a brand new Christian, one of the first books I read was Lee Strobel's book, uh, The Case for Christ. And yeah, that, I like one of my... Now it's faux pas, but my guy was Ravi Zacharias when I first became a Christian because of apologetics and intelligence and all that. And obviously he's had some scandal now, but it doesn't mean he wasn't saying truth. And so I read that book simply to learn how to defend the faith. So he did a really good job in that book with apologetics. And I think, and I think, so I say that because I think his heart is pure in writing this book. Um, And he made a statement that says, uh, he read a quote that said, the fires of heaven are hotter than the fires of hell. And I totally agree with that. But I also agree with him that he says, if you want hell, you can have it. And I, I, I choose hell on an hour to hour basis sometimes. So I agree with him on that as well. So I do not believe he is writing this book vindictively or not out of love. I truly think Lee Strobel wants people in heaven. And I appreciate that. And one of the things that I appreciated about the way Strobel and Copan, their conversation and their critiques is that I felt like 
they were really kind of reflecting a lot of the same basic critiques that you would hear. To me, they weren't saying critiques that you wouldn't hear. They were saying the kinds of critiques that and concerns that you would hear. And so I thought, well, this is a good, gives us a good opportunity then to have, have a discussion. So what I will do is I will uh, go through the critiques and then we'll just have a conversation about them. So I'll do the first critique and then Scott, you can start and Stephen, you can respond. So the first critique is that's in the book is that Christian universalism goes against the church's traditional position of eternal conscious torment established by such notable figures as Tertullian, Lactantius, Basil of Caesarea, Jerome, Cyril of Jerusalem, Chrysostom, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, Whitfield, and Wesley. As Lee Strobel summarizes, universalism falls outside the pale of the mainstream Christian tradition, although there are pockets of it in church history. All right, so Scott, what would you what would you say to that critique? Uh, well, one, he's kind of leaving out all the schools, the theological seminaries that were around. Um, that's the first place to start is what was what was being taught. And there were basically six schools, um, if I'm correct. Um, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But Alexandria, yeah, Antioch, yeah, Alexandria, Antioch, Caesarea, and Edessa all taught universalism. So four of the six taught universalism. So for him to say at least some form of universalism, for sure. So for him to say that that, that wasn't prominent, that's just, that's false. That's just false. Um, but I loved it when he quoted St. Jerome, because I actually found a quote from St. Jerome, and he said, I know that most persons, most, un- understand by the story of Nineveh and its king, the ultimate forgiveness of the devil and all of rational creatures. So how I view it is, you know, like most people, I always say when you find a verse in the Bible, keep reading. And so when he read one quote, he should have kept reading to read the rest of those quotes. And so to say that this wasn't a prominent view from the early church fathers is just false. But I will give him some grace. And here's why. I I like to use this analogy because, um, and I might have said this on your podcast when I did it with you, so please forgive me if you've already heard it. But remember that scene in Back to the Future, the movie, and he goes back to the 1950s. And they just, they can't understand each other's culture or language. Like they Mm -hmm. thought Marty McFly, like he was wearing a vest. And to us, vests are like October weather in Montana. So it's a cool thing. They thought he was in the Navy because he had a life preserver on. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) I like to use that analogy because if that's only, you know, 50 or 70 years ago, like how do we look at 2000 years ago? And so I think that's one of the biggest hangups is the language behind it and also just the full picture of what those guys were trying to say. Um, and so you can't just stop at one quote from them because they also grew and journeyed. Cause if you looked at a quote from 2010 from Scott clout and said, that's what he believes, I would correct you on that. Um, so that's how I see it. Like when he says that this wasn't a prominent view, that's just, that's not true. That's just not true. But I think again, a lot of it has to do with cultural differences with language and how they even viewed the afterlife and all that. So, yeah, I think he was kind of grasping at straws at that one. All right, Stephen, what would you say to that that same uh, critique about Christian universalism falling outside the church's traditional position? Yeah, I mean, it's true in the early church there were a lot of universalists, and then it sort of fell out of fashion for a while, and then there was like a number of hundreds of years where like there weren't that many people. But uh, I just don't really care. Like, that's the thing. I'm a Protestant. Like, I don't really care. <laughs> it's kind of weird to say, I guess, but like, um, you know, the age of the earth, 
and the fact that species can go extinct were super, uh, you know, those are locked in for a lot of people. Like, you know, Thomas Jefferson thought species can't go extinct because God wouldn't let any species go extinct. And that was the popular view by his time and for thousands of years before him, because God just wouldn't let species go extinct. But now we know that species have gone extinct. God does let it happen, or at least we could say it happens. So there's a lot, and I mean, baptismal regeneration, I don't know the exact like demographics, but there, so many people have believed in baptismal regeneration over the years in the church, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I just uh, think that they were mistaken for hundreds of years. <laughs> so uh, there's not uh, like, I can't just say, yeah, it's, universalism was the biggest uh tradition in the church because it definitely wasn't right but there was a time where it was a very big portion and now i think we're recovering that tradition that was there in the early days and sort of took a dip for a while and we're coming back out of it yeah i think for anybody that's really interested in going further into this uh, alaria ramelli's book a larger hope is a really good place to start because what happens is you can quote an early church father as believing in eternal torment but in the Greek, if you read it in the original Greek, they were comfortable with language about Aeonian Colossus that sounds, if it gets translated into English, it sounds like they're affirming eternal torment, but they meant something different by that in, in the Greek. So what I like about Alaria Ramelli's books is she's going back and she's looking at the original languages and how those original languages worked and helping us to understand the ways that the some of these early church fathers were thinking that that advocated for um, universal restoration. Yeah, and like eternal eternal doesn't just mean a time; it means a mindset to think to not think down but think up. All right. Well, let's let's continue on. The second critique that is in Lee Strobel's book is a part where he says the main advocate of Christian universalism was Origen, and he was condemned as a heretic by the church at the Fifth Ecumenical Council in 553 A.D. Um, so I guess, uh, Stephen, what would you say to that concern? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, I'm not sure he was the main one. Like, it could have been Gregory of Nyssa was the main one, but definitely Origen was one of the main ones, right? But um, but also, like, as far as councils go, I've never cared too much about councils again. Like, But for the people that do care about councils, as far as I understand this council, it uh, may not be that universalism itself was condemned there but that it was part of like a package deal of the things that they listed, right? They, they listed a number of things that they were condemning. And uh, so it may have been that whole set together that they were condemning a certain kind of universalism maybe, but, um, and it could be that the whole thing was sort of a sham anyway. So I really don't know that much about it, uh, but you can read about it at Eclectic Orthodoxy. You know, Al Kimmel has a better article than I could describe, and it's so long that it would take so long to describe it. Yeah, that's definitely a good place to get the background. As, as, as I understand it, what happened was there was a canon, I think the 11th canon, and Origen's name was inserted in the 11th canon as a heretic. But then there's nothing in the official um, records of the council that say what exactly he was supposedly a heretic for. Um, right. and, those, and the anathemas were imperial anathemas that history has shown were never formally discussed at the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Um, but anyway, that's, that, that's just some of, some, some of my thoughts about it. Scott, do you have anything to add to this? Yeah, I think any, I mean, without going too far into it, I think everyone should just listen to John Bear's podcast on your podcast. Um, 
because he breaks that down great. But he, he's, he's right, though. Like, it was added afterwards. And the bottom line, too, for me is Tertilli, or, uh, Justinian <laughs> was not exactly the best guy. <laughs> and I don't want to – I hate when people, like, try to crush character to ruin everything about them. I don't, I'm not doing that. But I think sometimes we forget these guys were politicians. And to base an entire thing off just uh, Constantine and Justinian – when they were clearly trying to take control over the system that they knew Christianity wasn't going anywhere, they couldn't control it. So they created this, you know, that would be like Joe Biden calling up all of us pastors to come discuss theology. Like, you know, what is your purpose, Mr. Biden? <laughs> you know, so I think there was a lot going on there between uh, uh, Constantine and Justinian that makes me doubt uh, the whole process of that, um, especially the Pope wasn't there. He basically got drugged there and then denounced it as far as I know um, from John Bear. But I just, I, I struggle taking a pagan King who did a lot of terrible things to Christians, even who didn't agree with him and using that as the example. But again, it wasn't even a, it was added to the records after. And I agree with Stephen that the things that were condemned were not universalism. It was certain types of universalism. And how we know that is Gregory of Nyssa would have never been named the father of fathers or been on the Council of Nicaea if that was heresy. Well, another thing is if you, uh, I noticed that there's a footnote um, in the book at this point, and they reference that. Chan and Sprinkle in their book Erasing Hell and in and in that book they in, well in the footnote there they talk about that Origen's views were complex and not always consistent and that as far as the Fifth Ecumenical Council a great deal of politics drove the council as well as other church councils so we shouldn't consider Origen's views heretical based solely on the decisions made at Constantinople Right. So I thought that was and, interesting that he, they make that critique in the book, but even then in a footnote, if you follow it up, they temper it a little bit. And it's funny that those same people who critique it use origin systematic theology approach. Like he created systematic theology, basically. Yeah, it, it, that origin, the, 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 a lot of what we have as Christianity and a lot the way that we have learned to think goes back to origin. So that... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he got his so butt kicked. Real. And he got his butt kicked for the faith and never renounced it. So heretics don't do that. Yeah, and Justinian he wanted to unite the uh, Roman Empire and its laws and its religion. Mm -hmm. So he really wanted he really wanted to drill down to this one form of the faith. And he was very Latin oriented, and he wanted like the Greek influence as much as he could to get out of the Roman Empire. He closed the philosophical the Greek philosophical school. And he was he was hard on the Jews. He was really trying to make the laws and the religion uh, as clear as he possibly could. And so he was an advocate. I, th I think he personally was an advocate of the eternal conscious torment view. And so he passed imperial anathemas and those imperial anathemas never got formally ratified by the council. But the memory of those anathemas made it so it, it sort of it sort of felt like from that time going forward in Western Christendom, if you did if you affirmed anything other than e eternal conscious torment, you could be considered a heretic. Right. Okay. Third, uh, this is a quote from uh, Paul Copan, and I'll come to you, Scott, about this. Copan says, 
I believe universalism is an aberrant and dangerous doctrine. You certainly get no hint of it in the Old Testament, where Psalm 1-6 reads, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So what would you have to say to that? Well, kind of what I said from the beginning is he should read the rest of the book. And, you know, he, he ends up quoting Isaiah 40-something, I think, in the book. Um, but again, if you if you keep reading, <laughs> that there's this there's the lens keeps going out, um, and I can actually use one from I'll, I'll prove it to you from Isaiah. Um, I wrote it down just for this podcast. So here is Deuteronomy twenty three one. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. So at that time when that was written, those guys were they were out. They were out. And from their mindset, they were like, okay, those people will never, ever, ever be into the kingdom. Fast forward to Isaiah 56, three through eight. It says, do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls, a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. And it goes on. So that's my, you know, he can quote that if he wants, but there's, <laughs> you got to extend the lens because again, once you got to the, the time of Isaiah, the people were like, oh, I thought the eunuchs were out. And now he's like, no, they're in. And so for him to say that, that pr- there's nothing in the Old Testament that proves universalism, that's just, that's, false, but it's just because he's cherry picking certain verses. You got to look at the whole thing. All right, Stephen, anything you'd like to say about that? Uh, Yeah, I mean, just kind of the same idea. I do think there's a lot of things that point at least give hints toward universalism. I mean, uh, God says to Abraham in Genesis that all the families of the earth will be blessed and that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed. And in Ezekiel, God describes how even Sodom will be restored. Sodom, which is famously a destroyed city right so there's definitely some precedent for the idea that everyone even the people or cities that suffered a very city serious judgment will be saved and i think one of the best books that goes into the old testament because admittedly a lot of universalist books don't talk very much about the old testament that was one of the big critiques people had of david bentley hart's my favorite universalist book that all shall be saved is that didn't really touch on the old testament but robin perry's book under the name gregory mcdonald the evangelical universalist does actually go into the old Testament quite a bit. And there's this large thrust like Scott was talking about, that is a thrust toward universal salvation. Mm-hmm. Well, there's that there's the, there are passages which seem in the old Testament, which seem to pronounce a judgment, which is final. But then later on, there is also a restoration that is announced. So that kind of goes back to what Scott was talking about. You, you mm-hmm. kind of have to keep, you, you kind of have to keep reading. And uh, I, I'm just thinking that, you know, like from the Psalms, sometimes you don't think about Psalms and theology, but in Psalm 22, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Psalm 30, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Um, Psalm 65, 2, O you who hear prayer, to you shall come all flesh. Um, Psalm 86, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Psalm 145, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Um, 
you know, so that's kind of what I found is that once I started looking for, once I started opening myself to the idea that God might have an ultimate restoration in mind, I started seeing all these passages, even in the Old Testament, that jumped out of me. And there was one, uh, Lamentations 3, 31 to 33, for the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he does cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For it is he does not you know, willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, that's a great, that's a great description of, of, of who God is. And it's right there in the, in the old Testament. And or Micah, and, Micah, Micah six, two, I can't remember Micah six, two. It says on the third day, he will raise us up. Like <laughs> he's talking about being dead. So dead people don't do anything. <laughs> so uh, he's, he, he's just making a statement, a, a global statement on the third day, he will raise us up. So that's, that's a very big one. Yeah, there's this whole, there's all these passages in the, in the Old Testament where nations get condemned and then nations get restored or groups of people seem to be condemned, but then they're, they're restored. And there's, so there's this condemnation and, and restoration. So you have to, you do have to, have to keep reading. All right, let's, let's who was, who was the king, who was the king that went with uh, Melchizedek to meet Abram, the king of Sodom? <laughs> so okay. It, it's just all together. It's just all together. And, you know, he does say, he says, Psalm 1 6, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And mm-hmm. those of us who believe in universal reconciliation would be able to affirm that completely. Uh, we could even affirm that it leads to a complete and total destruction, kind of like Sodom was completely destroyed. But. God can restore that which has been completely destroyed by sin because with God, all things is possible. So we, yeah, we, we fully, I mean, that's what I think. We fully agree that, that sin leads to destruction. Would you all agree? Yeah. I mean, it leads to, I mean, yeah, I guess the question would be if it leads to complete destruction, because if some people it's like, it doesn't exist anymore. Like that would be uncomfortable for me to say, but I mean, sin leads to death. <laughs> yes. Yes. I absolutely agree oh. that sin leads to destruction, not because of the Bible, because I've seen it in my own life. Yeah. All right. Fourth, Strobel admits that there's an emotional tug to the idea of all being saved. Paul Copan responds, yes, who doesn't want everyone to be saved? Even God desires it, he declared, his eyes widening. As 1 Timothy 2.4 and 2 Peter 3.9 say, he wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth, but Christ is the potential Savior of all, not the actual Savior of all. In other words, salvation is universal in intent, that is, God's desired will, but it's not achieved in fact, that is, God's permissive will. While salvation is potentially offered to all, not all freely accepted. The scriptures, he continued, repeatedly indicate that there will always be creatures who fully and finally say no to God. Finite moral agents, whether angelic or human, have the capacity to choose contrary to God's moral order. Only God is necessarily good. He cannot do what is wrong. The same isn't true for contingent moral creatures like us who can choose lesser finite goods over the ultimate good. They can turn a good thing into a God substitute and fall prey to idolatry. 
So I guess, Scott, what would you have to say to a critique like that? Uh, I think Copan then, his heart is in compassion and mercy is greater than God's. If he's going to say everyone wants it, but God just can't do it. <laughs> so I, I, the one that was one part that kind of roused me up because I've heard it so many times where it says universalists are just giving into the culture of sentimentality. Or, I can't remember the exact quote. And he's like, you know, our wishy-washy culture that everyone's okay. And I actually see that the complete opposite. <laughs> our culture is not grace-filled. It's not mercy-filled. It doesn't want people to succeed. It doesn't want people in. So that that's just a false view of society. Like, I follow tons of liberals and tons of conservatives online, just because I always, I want to hear both sides. There's no, at this point, the liberals are just as bad as the conservatives and the conservatives are just as bad as the liberals. And if you can tell me that in our society, that liberals really want conservatives to be with them in heaven and and conservatives really want them to be with them in heaven, I guess we're not showing it at least. So I think that is a completely false statement. And I've heard it often that it's just, it's just wishful thinking. And I'm going, that means that we want something more than God wants. And I just, I'm just not buying that. I'm not buying that because our society is not grace filled. It's not wishy-washy. Most people live in, we all live in delusions. So the people who, um, how do I say this without offending someone? Um, most people want other people to sin, not because they love them, but so they feel better about their own sin. You know, so it's not like they want them included into their thing. They just they don't want anyone to judge them. So, you know, it's not our society proves over and over that we are not mercy filled, grace filled, forgiving people. So for him to say that that's just a societal thing, that's just that's not. So I can I'll wrap it up with just saying we're sin, we're sin abounds. Grace abounds all the more. I mean, that's the verse that just says as sin goes like this, the grace keeps going out all the more. So his heart is way bigger than ours. And it's not sentimentality. It's the heart of God, because he said, I desire all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, I'm pretty sure that somewhere in the Bible, it says God gets his desires. I think it's Isaiah again. But so that's that's just a false statement. Most people do not want like let's just do a poll and said, do you want Hitler in heaven? No one would say yes except the universalist probably. So, so that's, that was just a, that was a false dichotomy. It's kind of like saying when you go to a job app, a job application, they're like, what are your, what's your greatest weakness? I just care too much. I just care too much. It's a form of manipulation kind of to kind of go around the issue. So no, most people don't want everyone to be saved, but God does. All right, Stephen, what would you have to respond to? What would you say there? Yeah, well, just sort of um, to agree with Copan a little bit, contingent moral creatures certainly can choose lesser things that go against God's moral order. I mean, we see that all the time, right? But will anyone choose utter evil and absolute suffering for themselves forever? That's the question, right? That's the question we're asking. Even with God's everlasting patience, even if the choice is utterly irrational and incredibly painful. So Copan says even divine love can be resisted, but will people resist forever? That's the question, and I don't think people will. Was it was it interesting to you, any of you guys, that they seem to be acting from an evangelical point of view that all evangelicals would have the idea that, you know, that that God uh, somehow wants all to be saved, 
But in Calvinism, there's not really that idea, is there, that 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 God really just desires that the elect would finally ultimately be saved. Does that yeah, make there's sense two kinds of Calvinism. So, I mean, there's mm-hmm. a kind of Calvinism that says he does want everybody to be saved, but he only uh, gives the irresistible grace to some people, even though he does want the people who he's not giving irresistible grace to to be saved, which is very confusing to say, but a lot of people say it. And then there are the, what I would think are more consistent Calvinists who say, no, he doesn't want everybody to be saved. <laughs> right. Well, and I said this on your podcast. I said universal, universalism and Calvinism are kind of the same thing, just... Calvinism has less people. That's 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 really where kind of I've landed when I look at it. But I also I totally agree with Stephen. This has to do with choice and free will, which David Bentley Hart does do great at kind of describing free will. But basically, we've said because the the eternal conscious torment view says because I love you, I'm going to let you go. Well, as a father, I would not do that for my children. You know, even if they had their free will to go do that. So I think I think when they say God says, I love you, and because I love you, I'll step back and grant you freedom, that just seems like a recipe for disaster. You know, so I just think that's that's where he's wrong when it comes to choice and freedom and stuff like that. It's like it it doesn't mean that freedom isn't real or choice isn't real. It's just from the universalist position, it means God doesn't give up on us when we make the wrong choices. It seems uh, strange to me when I when I hear this kind of language. Then they start talking about that God has these sort of competing wills. That mm-hmm. on the one hand He wants something, but on the other hand He knows He's not going to get it. And so, but He's not like a human parent that has other contingent forces they can't control. God is the creator of, of all that is, and and so. There's nothing preventing God from getting exactly what God wants out of creation. So I think David Bentley Hart does a good job of saying that whatever it is that God gets out of creation tells us about the moral character of God because the two things are inseparable. So that that whole thing about the the, the different wills that are inside of God it seems to, to make God a conflicted kind of being. Yeah, well, the Calvinists kind of got around that by saying some are chosen, some are not, meaning some are children of God and some are not. So, when, if right, so that's, consist- that's consistent. At least that's consistent. Yeah. yeah, so if you explain that to them, I understand why in their mind they see the separation. I also thought that it was kind of chilling, the part where he said that only God is necessarily good. He cannot do what is wrong. That seems to be kind of an argument that I hear sometime that, well, it almost sounds like, well, God can do things that don't seem right to us, but it's good if God does them. And that can be kind of, that can be kind of chilling. I've, I've thought before <laughs> that means that God could potentially make a creation in which no one is saved and everyone is tormented to just to display God's righteousness and goodness and glory. And apparently that would be good in this. I mean, if you if you sort of take the logic of that, because whatever God does is good. But it that does seem to be some of the types of things that I hear that since God, if, if God does it, it is therefore good. Have you all heard that kind of stuff, too? 
Yeah, I mean, I I'm not sure that it's scarier coming from Calvinists in a lot of cases. Copan's <laughs> uh, yeah. a Molinist, so his he takes a more Arminian view, I think, of of uh, how God's nature is good. But I still think he should be a universalist. I think any Molinist should be a universalist because if you think that God can look at all the possible worlds that could possibly exist and he can see what would happen in each possible world and he has to decide if he wants to create a world, which one he would choose and to like activate into existence, basically. And if he looked at all the possible worlds, like Molinists say, and he saw that some people were trans-world reprobates, which means that they wouldn't be saved in any of these possible worlds, I think God would say, never mind. I won't yeah. make a world then. Yeah. But in the way Craig and Copan, there are Alvin Plantinga doesn't do this. He actually might be a universalist. We can't really talk to him now. I think he's a little old for interviews, but he might be a universalist. But the other, well, he also doesn't call himself a Molinist, but he basically is. But Craig and Copan, who are two big Molinists, they do believe, as far as I know, in trans world reprobation, which is that God said, hey, you know, some of these guys are going to have to take one for the team because if I'm going to create the world, some of them, they aren't saved in any possible world, but I got to create a world with a certain amount of people. And so these guys are going to go to hell forever because they're just not saved in any world. Scott, do you have anything to add to that? Very simply, just why? <laughs> why do it then? I agree with Steven. Like, it, it just still makes God out to be a really kind of erratic God. You know, like, yeah, I might throw a planet here and suffer. They'll suffer there. I might throw up, you know, this, that just doesn't seem like the purpose of love in Christ Jesus to do those things. So that's kind of one of my greater arguments for universalism is if, if God is omniscient and all that stuff, then he knew this was going to happen. And so uh, like, if, if I knew I was going to create something and it was going to be destroyed and then hurt forever, I wouldn't create it. So I agree with Stephen on that. Okay, let's get to the next concern. Uh, Strobel recognizes that in Colossians 1.16, Christ is said to have been the agent through whom all things were created. And then in Colossians 1.20, he is called the agent through whom all things are reconciled. Paul Copan responds, you have to keep reading to get the full picture. Paul goes on to say in verse 23, now he has reconciled you if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So there's a condition there. We see something similar in Romans five, just as all in Adam fall. So all in Christ, the second Adam are reconciled to God, but these aren't identical groups to be in Adam. The old fallen humanity is to face condemnation to be part of the new humanity in Christ through faith is to experience redemption. Strobel then concludes, you can't disconnect these texts from what Paul says elsewhere, that some will be shut out from the presence of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, or that those who preach a false gospel are under God's curse, Galatians 1.8-9. So uh, I guess, Stephen, how would you respond to a concern like that? Yeah, so um, when he says that uh, the all isn't the same all that's in Adam and in Christ, uh, that's hard to read from just that verse. I understand where they're bringing it in from other verses that they already believe teach eternal torment. So they have to read the all as not being the same all, but the way the verse itself is set up anyway, uh, the two alls are identical, right? Uh, the, mm -hmm. 
it's the point of the passage. The same group, everyone that died in Adam will be made alive in Christ. Like that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying as in, just like in this case where everyone died in Adam, then in this other case, everyone, the same everyone will be made alive in Christ. So it's kind of hard to read those as different alls, especially because of the way it's set up. It's supposed to be the same all. That's how the sentence is set up. Scott, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think I think all the word all and the word if in the scriptures and the word therefore are very important words. Because again, the cultural differences, like when when we read if any was anyone is in Christ, we take that from an American lens that means it's in or out. Okay. But really, if you study the rest of that passage, if means since. It means since. So like what and I'll kind of tie it back to your original uh, quote where it says, "If you, if you continue on, you know, or as First Corinthians fifteen says, unless you've believed in vain, <laughs> you know." So Paul isn't saying you may or may, not, may or may not be in Christ. He's saying since you are in Christ, you should start acting like it. And so basically, he's like, "Well, you've believed the good news. Is that in vain because you're not doing anything with it?" And so I use the example with my son. My son's name is Easton Clout, and he is my son, and he is a clout. Nothing will ever change that. Nothing. Now, he can grow up and be like, yeah, dad, you're not my dad. I don't believe in you, and I'm not a clout. And I'll be like, well, you live in delusion because <laughs> you're my son, and you're a clout. And so when I say to him, son, if you are my son, you will act according to the rules of the clout household. I'm not saying you're not my son. I'm saying since you are my son, start acting like it. And I, so that's where I think those words are so important. And then therefore, that word therefore, that doesn't mean anything else. But because these things have been completed, therefore, we should do this. So that's how I view Colossians as well. Same with Stephen. It's just he's setting up this larger picture <laughs> and he's saying because or since everyone is in Adam or was in Adam and now in Christ, you know, whatever that he's making this whole different argument than Western evangelicals have made. And so Stephen was totally dead on. If you come into this and you tell yourself, well, all can't meet all because I've already been told that it's not all, then it won't make sense. But if you break down the whole passage, even first Corinthians 15, they always skip to verse 22 through the rest. You got to start at first one to get the full picture of what Paul's saying in first Corinthians 15. So I find it interesting that he said, you got to, you got to keep reading, which I've said multiple times on this podcast and he should have kept reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I spoke with um, a new Testament translator, Jonathan Mitchell about that. And he made the same point that the, the particle there, AE is a, what's called a particle of fulfilled condition, which can be rendered since or in view of the fact. Hmm, I didn't know that. So, but that's what you were, that's what you were saying. It's yeah. the same, it, it's the same thing. And so to me, and it's also interesting to me that, you know, like, like for instance, if, if you read the whole chapter, Strobel will say in the chapter that, you know, anybody can be saved. All you have to do is repent and have faith. But then, you know, in this answer from Copan, it seems that it's saying, oh yeah, well, anybody can have faith if you repent and believe, as long as you continue in your faith, establish and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of noticed, I noticed that when I, when I was first around, I didn't grow up in church, but when I was around evangelicalism, 
it, it, to me, it always seemed like a bait and switch. Like mm -hmm. they would say, all you have to do to be saved is believe. But then they would say, well, and repent. And well, you need to be baptized and you, you, you have to come to church. You need to, you have to come to church too. I mean, maybe you don't have to come to church every Sunday, but you should be there. Like, unless you've got a, like a real excuse, you should be here. And, uh, you know, don't do, and you know, and don't do these things. And also you've got to take the narrow path and you've got to stay firm in your faith, like all the way through your life. And, you know, by the right. time, by the time they added everything onto what it was, it made me feel like, well, even if I did accept Jesus as my savior, everything I would have to fulfill for the whole rest of my life to even make it, you know, even it sounds to me like what they're saying is even the people that do accept him have very, very small chance of actually making it into heaven. And so it's like, even what they were trying to tell me was good news didn't really seem like very much good news because there were so many conditions laid on that whether or not you were actually going to get the prize. Yeah, it was what it did was it created moralism to where you could then gauge a person's salvation by how they were acting. So then you could almost feel superior to somebody that it was almost like you weren't gauging yourself to Christ anymore. You were gauging yourself to a fellow Christian to think you're okay because you're not doing the things that they're doing. Yeah, I talked to one lady who said that she she kind of bought into this and she said she ended up on the spiritual roller coaster where when she was doing good, she felt like she was saved. But then when she would miss church for a while or she would feel cooled off in her faith or have some temptation that she fell to, then she would feel like she wasn't saved. So then she would try to get ramped back up. And she said that finally that roller coaster became so crazy that it just threw her off, that she just mm -hmm. couldn't handle it anymore. And so to me, that's kind of what's getting that's kind of what's getting set up here. Yeah. So we had a we had a, a kids pastor at our church who was from Holland, very Calvinist, very, he grew up Calvinist and stuff. And he said, he told me his family and friends still struggle with their, they don't know if they're saved or not. They don't know if they're mm -hmm. chosen or not. And they're in their sixties and seventies. And so I believe that's a trick of Satan to keep you on milk. Salvation is milk. And I know, I, I mean, we can exhaust salvation our whole life, right? I'm not saying it's easy or not mysterious, but it's, it's the entry point. And so if you don't ever think you're saved, you can't really move on to the deeper things. And so I think it's a huge scam and a trick from Satan to get people worried always about their salvation. Yeah, I found out in ministry that, that it was hard for me to get people beyond salvation management. You know, that their, their big question all the way along seemed to still be, well, does this mean, can I, when can I be sure that I'm saved? You know, that, that was such a, uh, a question their whole life that they could never, it was hard for them. A lot of folks to just finally have, have confidence. Steven, do you, you have anything to add to this? I mean, not really, except for that. I mean, sure. It happened to me too. I remember when I was a teenager and I repented uh, every day for like, I don't know how many days in a row, like 20 days in a row or something where I was like, okay, this time it's the real thing. I feel like I didn't do it right yesterday, you know? And uh, you know, that can happen to a lot of people. I knew a girl in my class when I was in elementary school that they would have, you know, the meetings in chapel. I went to a Christian school, so there was chapel every Wednesday, but they would have meetings in chapel sometimes. They'd be like, you know, come to the front if you want to be saved. And I I would open my eyes when we weren't supposed to open our eyes, right? And I would see her keep she would go up every time. She would go up every time. And it's not making fun of her, she's a kid. So right. of course she wants to, you know, do it right, but you know, there can be things 
certainly that uh, in the way the gospel is presented and stuff that make you kind of freak out and go, I didn't do it right the first time. I got to do it again. I didn't repent right. I didn't uh, pray right, you know? Yeah, you would think that like in uh, in Calvinism, since they are convinced that salvation is by grace alone, that they wouldn't struggle with this, but they have the idea of the perseverance of the saints. So only you only know if you've been saved by grace alone once you've persevered to the end. So they can be unsure about their salvation the whole time. And then the same thing happens on the Arminian free will side where they say, yeah, you anybody can be saved as long as you fulfill these conditions. But then you're never exactly sure what the conditions are. Maybe one time you go and you're made to feel like you're in and then another time you go and you're made to feel like, well, maybe you're not, you know, so you, you get on this roller coaster. Yep. All right. The sixth concern is that uh, Strobel recognizes that the Bible sometimes uses the word all to describe those who are ultimately redeemed as in first Timothy two, six, which says Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people to which Copan responds. We need to examine that word all closely. For example, when the gospel of Mark says, all the people of Jerusalem flocked to be baptized by John. He doesn't mean every single individual was doing that. It simply means a lot of people. In this case, Jesus did pay for all the sins of the world and made grace available to all sinners, but we have to accept that payment on our behalf if we're going to benefit from it. Not everyone will do that. I guess, Scott, what would you have to say about that? Well, I still don't understand that logic because he's taking two different sermons, one from Jesus and one from Paul. So they're, they're two totally different contexts. So, I mean, to say I gathered up all my tomatoes from my garden this year you know, <laughs> is different from all people coming to know Jesus. It's just because I missed a few, you know, <laughs> in my garden. But... So I just think again that's it's uh, it's circular logic. It's circular logic where you're you're saying Jesus is the savior of all mankind. So he he believes that that means all in Timothy. He he is the savior of all mankind. But all doesn't mean all when it comes to redemption. So it's it's still just the same circular reasoning that Stephen mentioned. Like if you come into it thinking that can't be, then you're just not going to see it. You're not going to see that all is all and um, you know, you break down that, that, you know, first Corinthians 15 with the all, and it's just, it's right next to each other. So I don't know why Paul would all of a sudden make a shift to where, yes, all died in Adam. That's proven, but all doesn't mean all in the next thing. It's just, that's just to me illogical and it doesn't fit the Greek narrative. Stephen, what would you have to say to this? Uh, well, I agree with Copan a little bit in that I'm, I believe that all cannot mean all sometimes in the Bible, right? Like he even gives the example, all the people of Jerusalem plot to be baptized by John. But of course, it wasn't all the people of Jerusalem. So we have to do it in, in context, right? It's certainly true that all is used loosely sometimes in the Bible and has to be understood in the different contexts it was written in. Like in the book of Joshua, it says that Joshua and all Israel with him went to fight, but it's safe to say that not every Israelite man, woman, and child actually went to fight in the battle. But in 1 Timothy 2, we read about how Jesus is the mediator between God and mankind. Right? Mankind isn't the same as the word all, even in this case. Mankind is generally used to mean every person. And he gave himself a ransom for all people. It's obvious that Paul doesn't just mean Israelites because he's a missionary to Gentiles. It's true that sometimes people would say, all people when they were just talking about all Israelites, right? But Paul doesn't talk like that because he's a missionary to Gentiles. 
And does mankind just mean men and not women or men and not children? Uh, that wouldn't make sense either, of course, since we know Paul totally approved of having women in churches and different ministry activities. The most natural reading of the idea that Jesus is a mediator for mankind and a ransom for all people is simply that he did and does it for every single person. And uh, there's another thing we can think of, too, which isn't just the word all, right? It's the word world. The word world is used a lot, especially in like John, right? Where the world is the enemy of God. And who <laughs> did Jesus come to save? The world, the enemy of God, mm -hmm. the whole world. That's the enemy of God. He came to save the whole world. And just to piggyback well, on what Stephen just said, that word's kind of cosmos. <laughs> you know, yes. it's not just it's not just world. It's an all-encompassing word. And if you study orthodoxy, the word, even just the word Adam represented the whole. It meant the whole. So if you go all the way back to the early church fathers, they, they never trifled with that. Like it meant the whole. Well, what, and what actually, was... one more one more thought. Forgive me. Okay. I want to piggyback off him again from Joshua. Even the Israelites who didn't go out to fight, when they won, they celebrated the victory. Okay. So everyone, everyone was included in the victory. Yes, sir. Well, I, I've, I've noticed... Like just if I if I'm talking with people, if I say that all is it is it is it the case that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? They'll you know they're always will say yes. It's like all always means all when it comes to sin, but then when it yeah. comes to grace, all doesn't mean suddenly all doesn't mean all when it comes to grace. And I think that's why that's what happens when you have that certain worldview, you know, that you just you've already you can't see it that way. Because you've already decided, you've already decided that it's not there. Yeah. Do you know David Partridge? He's a Calvinist home church planner, pretty well known. Do you guys know him at all? I, I don't. don't think so. So, anyways, I uh, I followed him a little bit, and I listened to his podcast, and just to hear from a Calvinist perspective on stuff. And he broke down Peter's statement where he says um, he is not being slow, but he wants all to come to repentance. <laughs> he literally broke that passage down and said, well, we know that election is true and predestination is true. So therefore what Peter is actually saying is God's taking his time. So all the elect can come in. And I mean, I just sat there listening to this being like, wow, you know, I, I wish we all could just admit that we take certain passages in the Bible differently. It's just, what lens you see him through the goodness of God for all mankind or just for a few, you know, cause he literally changed the Bible in that passage. So if, if, if you don't want to believe that all are going to get in, then they won't. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry. I was just thinking of something else, which is that uh, the symmetry in verses, right? A lot of people do like to talk about the verse in Matthew where Jesus says that there's the eternal punishment for the goats and the eternal, uh, eternal in quotation marks and the eternal life for the sheep. Right. And uh, the people who believe in an everlasting torment will say, we can't break the symmetry of this verse. You can't break the symmetry by saying that eternal could mean of the age to come and doesn't mean everlasting or something like that. Uh, but what about the symmetry of the verse that as an Adam will die, so in Christ all will be made alive? What about that symmetry? If we're talking about symmetry of mm -hmm. verses, this, these are two verses that are perfectly symmetrical with each other. We just have to figure out what the words mean. And I think that the symmetry better fits the as an Adam, so in Christ verse than a symmetry of everlasting torment in the Matthew verse, because that word eternal doesn't mean what people think it means. All right, let's continue on. Uh, the next concern, uh, one of the concerns is that Strobel recognizes Jesus' mission 
was to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10, and Strobel then asks, if some were actually left behind, did he fail? And then Copan responds, no, he didn't consider it to be a failure just because there would be those who refused to take the narrow road. Jesus acknowledged that the eleven disciples the Father had given to him were preserved, even though the son of perdition, Judas, didn't truly belong to Jesus, John 17, 12. At the cross, Jesus completed his mission. It is finished, John 19, 30. Isaiah 53 says, God would see the anguished death of his suffering servant as an atoning work that would justify many, Isaiah 53, 11, even if not all would embrace the Messiah. Jesus identified with us in life and death in order to save those who would choose the narrow path. Think of the parable of the prodigal son, he added. Jesus leaves his hearers with this implicit challenge. Will we go inside to celebrate with the repentant sinner, or will we stay outside as the self-righteous older brother? God doesn't cancel the celebration just because there are some who don't want to go inside. Why should God defer to the naysayers over the willing participants? It's up to humans to say yes or no to God's initiating grace. Jesus' very teaching assumes that some will embrace him while others will not, a point that the parable of the four soils makes in Matthew 13. So, Scott, when you hear a concern like that, what kinds of things come to your mind? Well, that was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. So I'll start with the sheep. One, what was the sheep? He, was, he or she was lost. What happened? Nothing. The shepherd found him, put him on his shoulders, took him home. So when, when, he, when he said that, that that's the one that kind of irked me a little bit, that one in the prodigal son story, because the whole point is Jesus, he, he said a number for a reason. There's a reason he said a number. He didn't say, I got a few lost sheep out there. Some of them are just, they're already over the ravine. The wolves took them. I just, I couldn't do anything, you know, but there's a few out there I can still save. He didn't say that. He said, there's 99. So basically a hundred, there's a hundred in this fold, a, a great number. And I got one that's lost. So I'm going to leave all you guys and go find that one. I'm going to put it on my shoulder and bring it home. So I don't understand how people miss that when they read that passage, because it's kind of like Romans when he's like, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, what do dead people do? Nothing. They're dead. They do nothing. Jesus just saves them. So he then moves on to the prodigal son story. And I actually view the one, I think we can all admit the prodigal son story is a hinge story. It's a hinge story because mm -hmm. so many books have been written on it. It's a hinge story. But I, I, I almost view that story now, not just in this life, but the afterlife, because it says the father died. That's the Greek. And the younger son was dead. He was dead and then came to his senses. And then you get to, I could walk through this whole thing, but you get to the end of it and the older brother is standing outside. And he's like, well, what kind of music are they playing? Who's all in there? Why is that guy in there? You know, <laughs> and he's outside the party. So I actually equate the prodigal son story to Revelation where it says her gates are never shut because it says the door's open or it doesn't say the door's open, but it says the party's going on. Someone's outside and the father just kind of waits outside and meets him. And he's like, okay, I'll wait here as long as you got. And I can't remember the early church father saint, but he said, as long as someone's in hell, be rest assured, Christ will be with him. So when Strobel and those guys sit, use that verse, I actually have more fear for them that they might be outside the party because they're upset a bunch of other people got in. So that's all I got to say about the prodigal son. But Strobel also went on, he, he used this multiple times about the narrow road. And I'll make this very brief. 
it's really terrible exegesis because Jesus was giving a full sermon, a full sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You can't, you can't break that up into different theologies. He was leading them on something, and he starts the whole thing out with the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not something new. He wasn't initiating it. The kingdom of God is what's always been. It's always been that. And so you get down to the narrow road and he's like, yes, you got to enter the gate. Well, John 10, he is the gate. The road that he's talking about is not salvation. (laughs) It's the kingdom of God. So like what he's saying is it's hard. It's hard to turn the other cheek. It's hard to be meek. It's hard to be those things. And only a few find that narrow road, meaning the kingdom way. But that doesn't mean only a few find salvation. It just means it's really, really hard to walk this road. But the beauty of it is Christ lives in me and he helps me walk that road. And when I fall off that road and I destroy myself, that false self in me is dead and he picks me back up and puts me back on the road. So I just think the the way they view those passages are wrong. Again, Strobel said that so many times about the narrow way, the narrow way. And I'm not disagreeing with him. The narrow way is narrow and the other way leads to destruction. But that is different than salvation. That's different than entering the gate in salvation. Yeah, I remember growing up, you know, just again, just hearing some of these evangelical sermons. And they keep talking about the narrow way, the narrow way. And then when I got in seminary and found out that Jesus' message was about the, the presence of God's kingdom, which is now here. And he described in the Sermon on the Mount how it is that we can live now in God's kingdom on earth mm-hmm. as it is in heaven. And, of course, he lays all of that out. And it's pretty challenging. And he says, you know, as a matter of fact, this is so challenging. Most people won't accept it, you know. No. And they think that they think that what they're doing, they're getting a good deal. But really, well, they're on a broad path to destruction. Right. And then, and then once I realized that that destruction is exactly that thing which Jesus ultimately saves us from, like in the parable mm-hmm. of the prodigal son, that's a good example. The prodigal son was on that wide path that led to destruction. But anyway, once you, I think once you start to understand the context of Jesus' proclamation about the good news of the now present kingdom, and he was talking about these things, but then what happens is some of the things he's talking about there kind of get lifted out and uh, put into kind of a salvation equation that seems like yeah, it's and almost that, and impossible. And that's the issue. Yep. That's the issue is, is evangelicalism has made that passage into the next life. And Jesus was talking about this life, the kingdom now. And he said it in Luke. He goes, the kingdom of God lives in some of you already. It's already in some of you. you know. <laughs> so I think that narrow road for destruction is the way you are actually resurrected. Like you kill yourself in a way so you can be resurrected in who you are in Jesus Christ. All right, Stephen, what would you have to say about that, that this long concern that between Strobel and Copan that they raise? Uh, well, going back to the prodigal son uh, story, when uh, I think it was Copan who said, uh, God doesn't cancel his celebration just because there are some who don't want to go inside. And I would say, yeah, God certainly doesn't cancel a celebration. But if the older brother never ended up coming into the party, that certainly would affect uh, the relationships in the family, right? I don't think there's any implication yes. that the older brother's never going to come inside. I think the implication is, hey... You're still invited to the party. You can sit out here for a while if you're going to be like that about it, but uh, you can still come in. And I think, I mean, if you look at the story of the younger brother, how far he went and how far he came back, I think that gives us good reason to think the older brother is going to come in too. Yeah, the idea that the what's implied here is that the father 
just said, oh, well, and uh, went back to the party. And people asked, well, where's, where's, where's the older brother? And he said, well, he's out in the field. And I guess he, he can come in here or he can die out there, but let's party. You know, that just, that doesn't yeah. And the story the doesn't care. end that way, though. The story ends with the party going on <laughs> and her gates are never shut. And the father's kind of sitting outside. That's how that story ends. All right, let's, uh, let's continue on. Eighth, or the eighth concern that I've got here is that Strobel quotes a New Testament scholar, William Barclay, who said, if one man remains outside the love of God at the end of time, it means that that one man has defeated the love of God, and that is impossible. Copan responds, but we can't ignore the many scriptures that indicate some will have their own way and get their divorce from God, despite God's best efforts. God doesn't force his love on people. Jude 21 reminds us, keep yourself in God's love. That suggests that we can remove ourselves from God's loving influence. If God's undefeatable sovereignty means that all will be saved, how is this accomplished since it's up to human beings whether to accept or reject God's initiating grace? We routinely read in Scripture that God does his utmost to reach people only to be rebuffed. God actually appears exasperated at the rebellion of his people. For example, in the parable of the vineyard in Isaiah 5, when Israel produces bad fruit, God asks, What more could have been done for my vineyard, that is Israel, than I have done for it? In Matthew 23, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, longing to gather the city as a hen gathers her chicks, but Jerusalem refused. In Acts 7.51, before he was stoned, Stephen accuses his stiff-necked persecutors of always resisting the Holy Spirit. For stubborn rebels, the more God pours out his grace, the more they want to flee. They want to find happiness on their own terms. So, Stephen, I'll start with you. What would you say to some concerns like that? I think Copan is definitely right that we can resist the Holy Spirit. But again, the question uh, when it comes to universalism is simply whether the Holy Spirit will continue to reach out to us beyond the grave, which I think there's good reason to believe, and whether or not anyone will continue to resist forever and ever. God is more patient and loving than we are stubborn and selfish. So it's not a question of whether or not we can resist the Holy Spirit. We do it all the time. The question is whether we'll do it forever or whether God's grace, which goes on forever, will win in the end. And I think there's good reason to think that we won't resist the Holy Spirit forever because he's better at resisting our resistance. <laughs> good word. Okay. All right. Scott, what would you add to that? Well, not much, except that it just goes back to the same thing, to where he's quoting a passage where God's talking about his people in that moment at that time. That passage has nothing to do with hell. Absolutely nothing to do with hell. He's talking about his people planting those vineyards or, you know, and he's giving these wine analogies and all kinds of stuff for that moment. And fast forward, that's why I believe that most of the judgment passages are actually talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the reason I believe that is because Jesus said it. He goes, I came first for the house of Israel. That's a key verse. That's a key verse because he's, what he's saying to us is most of these things I'm talking about is addressing Jewish culture and history. So then he goes, you know, of course he goes up on a hill and cries over them because he's like, man, in 40 years, you guys are screwed. You're screwed. And I don't want that for you. So I, I look at so many of those verses now in a different lens, especially because I know that Ionios means age. 
And there's a new age now. We are in the church age in which the where Israel is absorbed into the church. Like we are, we're it. And so I don't view those passages that same way. But he keeps he keeps taking those verses as a future event instead of a direct word that Jesus or in Isaiah that God was saying to those people at that time. So I just don't think that has anything to do with hell. Well, one of the things that 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 occurred to me about this is that it's another thing I remember growing up that you, when you hear evangelicals, it would it would be kind of like, okay, God is sitting there and God is waiting on you and whatever you decide determines what's going to happen to you, that you're the one that's in charge of all of this, that God can't help right. you. Basically, God can't help you unless you will help yourself. And then I started finding out about different passages about the sovereignty of God and like, uh, isn't God the one no one is able to withstand Chronicles 26 is not God able to do whatever God pleases. Psalm 115.3 isn't the purpose of God rather than the plans of human minds. What will be established Proverbs 19.21 isn't the cause that no purpose of God may be thwarted. Job, Job 42.2 Isaiah 14.24 isn't God the one who declares the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46.10 isn't isn't God the one for whom nothing is too hard and for whom, for whom all things are possible? That's Jeremiah 32 and Matthew 19. And isn't God the one who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will? And the more that I started thinking about all these things, the more absurd it began to appear to me. The idea that we, this, I don't know, fallen humanity that is struggling and um, makes so many bad decisions and has such limited understanding that somehow we're the ones that are in charge. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like a parent talking to a little child and saying, well, honey, I'm sorry, but you're the one that's in charge of this. And if you don't make the right decision, there's nothing that daddy can do to help you. I mean, right. that just, the more that I began to think about it, the more it just started to make sense to me that it's, it's God's purposes are going to be established God made the creation. God set it into motion. God knows what God is doing. So whatever it is that's happening are things that God is fully anticipated and fully able to pull off. It just comes down to what is it that God really wants. And, and everything so God does, everything Jesus said was what he did. So that's the problem. Is sometimes we just take his words instead of his actions. So he preaches a sermon on the mount. What happens right after that? He comes down off the hill, just like Moses. What does he run into? A leper, <laughs> like right after that. So everything he says is, is what he also does. And so when he says, you know, forgive, forgive people, that's because what he does, he does that too, you know? And so I, I just think that's where we, sometimes we make that shift to where we just, we think of his words instead of his actions and his action, his actions are. I'm going to go save people. That's what I'm going to go do. So I think that's a huge discrepancy sometimes when people read his words rather than look at his life. And, and also this idea that uh, it's up to us. We have to do this thing about accepting God's grace or coming to God. Um, like there's a possibility that once we fully and completely understand who we are and who God is, and we understand that it's 100% in our interest to come to God and 100% against our interest to go away from God, well, of course, we're going to choose. Our freedom is not taken away at that point. We're just completely and totally enlightened. And we know now through sometimes maybe bitter experience what actually is 
in our best interest. And and those considerations, I don't I don't see any of that here. No. Remember when he said, if someone asks you to walk a mile, walk two? Well, if he says that, that means he'll do that. So if someone's walking in the wrong direction one mile, he'll gladly go two. He'll gladly go three. He'll gladly go four through the desert to get you to see love. That was the point of that. I want you to see these Roman centurions who are making you carry your, their stuff as human beings made in the image of God. And if you walk one mile, maybe in the second mile, they'll soften. And so what if what if the afterlife is the same way? Like you keep you keep going away from God and he's like, okay, we can keep going. But eventually he's going to win them over with the love of God. He's with love. He's going to. Yeah. And that was what, uh, when I found out that that was one of the big points that Origen thought was that God could preserve completely and totally could preserve free will, but still in the end, Mm -hmm. uh, have everybody come home. Stephen, anything else about this that you might want to add? Oh, well, free will is always really complicated, but uh, one of the things that I've always found comfort in is that free will is not a Christian problem. It's an everybody problem. The atheists talk Mm -hmm. about it all the time. Everybody talks about it. So free will is hard to think about sometimes, but it's uh, just a complication for everybody. But I think that um, even in different understandings of of free will within Christianity, sort of Arminianism, open theism, Calvinism, or compatibilism, uh, I think that you can still end up with a fairly consistent universalism in any of these. I've talked to open theists who are universalists, and I actually think they make a lot of sense in some ways, even though I'm not an open theist. So it's just one of the nice things, I guess, about... um, having a variety of different backgrounds within Christianity is they can still lead this way. There are Methodist universalists. There are Presbyterian universalists. There are Lutheran universalists. There are Eastern Orthodox and Catholic, even though the Catholics usually have the hopeful in parentheses, hopeful universalism, there still are, you know, fairly universalist Catholics. All right, let's continue on. We're, we're, we're moving, we're moving almost all the way through this. Now, the ninth concern that I'm going to bring from Strobel is that Strobel recognizes that in Philippians two, 10 through 11, it says every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He then puts the question to Copan. Doesn't this suggest that everyone will eventually come to faith? Copan responds, but will they bow willingly? Paul is citing Isaiah forty-five twenty-three there, and he's aware that not all bowing before God springs from humble, repentant hearts. God's defeated foes will bow before him in shameful, reluctant acknowledgement that he is Lord. Zephaniah two eleven. Just a few chapters later, Isaiah 49.23 indicates that some will bow down before God and lick the dust at his feet. His enemies exhibit a feigned obedience. In Psalm 81.15, according to the New American Standard Bible, the psalmist says, Those who hate the Lord would pretend to obey him, and their time of punishment would be forever. All right. Uh, I guess, uh, Stephen, what would you say to that concern? Uh, well, I mean, I just I looked at uh, Isaiah forty nine twenty three, and the people are said to be bowing down to Zion, I guess, which I think generally represents Israel. So I don't think it's talking about uh, God, but they're showing that they're submitting to Israel and to Israel's God, right? So certainly there are sections of Isaiah where we see Israel's enemies are made to suffer. Uh, like in verse 26, that says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. That's a pretty horrible image, right? But I don't see how that necessarily means that the people who suffer for being enemies of God and Israel will necessarily suffer forever, right? That's the question. The question isn't whether people suffer. The question isn't whether 
whether people resist the Holy Spirit. The question isn't whether people sin. It's whether they do this forever. That's the question of universalism. Everybody knows that people resist God. Everybody, Well, not everybody, but okay. But universalists believe that people resist God. Universalists believe that people sin. Universalists believe that people will suffer for their sin. The question is just whether this will go on and on and on and on and on forever. Uh, but anyway, in the case of Philippians 2.11, uh, exomologume, if I'm saying that right, from what I understand from the people who know Greek, since I don't, that word often means confess in the religious sense of confessing from the heart, right? This is talking about uh, Philippians. I'm not talking about right. the other verse now. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's not simply acknowledging a fact, right? It's a That's why it has only ever once in a while been translated as acknowledge. Uh, Usually it's translated as confess, and in some cases it's been translated as openly openly proclaim or praise. It would be kind of strange, too, in a passage like that first part of Philippians 2, which is focused on how we should be imitating the humility of Christ to basically say, look at how humble Jesus is. He even died on a cross, so imitate him. But if you don't, imitate him, then this humble Jesus will have you submit by force like a conquering Roman emperor and then throw you into everlasting torment. The point of the passage, if I'm understanding the gist of it right, uh, is how Jesus is exalted to the highest place by God because of his humility and how people will praise him because of that fact. It's talking about even in the ver- in the Bibles that have those like labels that break up chapters, I think it's labeled as the humility of Christ or something along those lines in a lot of those Bibles. Scott, what would you add to that? Not much. That was perfect. But the one thing I would add is if you actually look up that Greek word, it means joyfully confess. That's what it means in the Greek. It means joyfully confess. So I, <laughs> if there's, if there's, if hell is all suffering and all that, then how are you joyfully confessing somebody? But on the same side, he's, Stephen is correct. He is, he, Paul took a, a Jewish thing and made it Roman which one sheds tons of light on the inerrancy of scripture because Paul changed the Bible multiple times. But in Roman culture, oftentimes, if you were a good king, if someone uh, shared their allegiance with you, they were then on your side. They were on your side and you gave them uh, soldiers' duties and benefits and all that stuff. So I have a hard time believing that that joyfully someone's going to joyfully confess and then not be on his side, but just logically, I like to think logically where basically what's again, what Steven said is Jesus is going to pull everybody out of Hades, make them bow and then send them back into Hades just for his own ego. And that just does not fit Jesus because Jesus is God. He's the word. I start with him and he, he is humble. He is kind. He is long suffering, <laughs> all those things. So I have a hard time believing so what I believe what happened is, is Americans love power and they love, and this, not just Americans, this came from medieval theology that the King, you had to bow down the King, you had to do all those things, you know? And so they took that to Jesus, but how I view it is just Jesus. Yes. Everyone will bow when they see the goodness and the glory of God. And then he accepts them rather than sending them to uh, perdition for all time. When you said that, that uh, Paul often changed the Bible, it reminded me when uh, I did an interview with John Bear, and he said that, you know, that Paul still had the same scriptures after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, but right. now he's got a revelation, and now he starts to see these same scriptures, but he starts to see them. He sees now he sees he's seeing them differently, and so right. he's able to quote them. You said change the Bible, 
I'll just say he's able to quote them in creative ways now. He's, yeah, he's inter- able to interpret see- it. Interpret it. Yeah. 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 So he's taking these Old Testament, what what for him weren't Old Testament scriptures, but the Bible, as you as you said. So he takes the scriptures now, but he sees Christ in them in all kinds of places where he he didn't he hadn't seen before. Yeah, it's, it's the most common one is cursed. Cursed by God is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul changes it to cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, not by God. All right, well, let's continue on. This is uh, the next concern is that Strobel asked Copan for concluding reasons that Christian universalism falls short biblically. He replied by saying, both the Old and New Testaments reveal the opposite of universalism. We see the contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous in Psalms, Proverbs, and Daniel 12, 2, which talks about those awakening to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. In the New Testament, there's the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, or the simple contrast in John 3.16 between those who have eternal life and those who perish. In Revelation 13.8, we find a limited, unexpanding number of names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, without which one cannot be in the presence of God. In Romans 9.3, Paul wished he could be condemned so that his Israelite brothers and sisters could be saved. Matthew 12, 31 to 32 talks about the unpardonable sin that won't be forgiven in the life to come. When asked whether only a few would be saved, Jesus replied in Luke 13, 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. None of these fit the universalist narrative. Scott, what would you have to say to concerns like that? Uh, Forgive me, audience, but keep reading. (laughs) (laughs) you know? So it's like, yeah, I mean, I get what he's saying, but, and I agree with him. I actually agree with a lot of what he said, but it's still a view of this life compared to the afterlife because uh, evangelicals think, you know what? God is just going to destroy this place anyways. So I'll be good on the other side. But the actual gospel is, Hey, I'm redeeming this planet because it is good. And I, I'm going to save it. So it really just comes down to a perspective on all of those passages, whether you believe that's talking about, the next life or this life. So I'll just use one that you said there. When Paul said, I wish I could be condemned over Israel. Well, he was quoting Moses from the Old Testament, basically. Um, And he was talking about that time and that place because Paul knew and all those disciples knew the destruction of Jerusalem was coming. And they still love the temple. They still love Judaism. They still love that culture. And they did not want that to happen because they believed. And to this day, like the Jewish people are blessed. I don't care what anyone says. Like, and the reason why it's not because I think they're the chosen ones now. I think it's because they met God earliest in humanity. So they actually grew in intelligence and so many other ways, so many other ways that brought the world forward. Um, so I think Paul was talking, what I think what Paul was saying in that specific passage was we need the Jewish people to, to bring the whole church together, to bring all humanity together, but they're rejecting Jesus and they're going to be destroyed. And in 78 AD they were, and they were spread out throughout the entire world until 1942. So again, I, I think it's still a matter of perspective that he's thinking those are passages for the end of the world or the afterlife. When I think those were specific passages for the Jewish people. All right, Stephen, how would you respond to those uh, concerns? Uh, well, one of them that they bring up is, uh, or I guess Copan, sorry, that I guess uh, is brought up is uh, the thing that we already talked a little bit about, but the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And so 
I don't know Greek, but I'll just say that from the people who do know Greek that I've read, Ionios uh, can be translated as pertaining to the age to come, or it could be uh, pertaining to the things of God, uh, but it probably should not be translated as everlasting, or I would say even eternal these days, even though I know some people do use the word eternal in a different way that means pertaining to the things of God. But since I think most people these days, at least in the U.S., use the word eternal as a one-to-one synonym of everlasting, it'd probably be better not to translate it that way anymore. And well, by the was... way, that that word judgment, if you look it up, it means divine chastisement. It's the same word. It does not mean like re- retributive punishment. It means chastisement of the age. Yeah, I, I sort of learned that whenever you see everlasting a lot in English Bibles, what you need to, in the back of your mind, think, well, in the coming ages, in the coming age or in the coming ages, this yeah. will happen. But then and there was a new age when... Israel was done. A new age happened after that. Right. And at the end of the ages, I learned this from the early church fathers, from the ones that believe, well, at the end of the ages, like in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, God will be all in all. So when Mm -hmm. they thought, well, at the end of the ages, God will be all in all, they didn't think, oh, and then creation's over and nothing exists. At the end of the ages wasn't the end of everything. It was just the end of the ages. God was the creator of the ages. God brings the ages into existence. When the ages have fulfilled all of their purposes, then God will be all in all. So we'll, we will all be in God. We will all have, in, in a sense, transcended the ages. God uses the ages for purposes. So just once I begin to realize that in the Bible, the ages and the way time proceeds are very different than the way that, you know, that we tend to think about, like Stephen, you were talking about eternal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just a very different concept of time going on in, in successive ages or aeons in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Until you really get that, it's really hard to understand a lot of the judgment language. Well, in the end of yeah. time was the cross. The cross was the judgment. That was the end of time. And just to go back to the sheep and the goats, it still says nothing about accepting Jesus, receiving Jesus, saying the right words, baptism, nothing. It says nothing about that. And I love Thomas Hopko's view of this. He said in that passage, Jesus became who he always was, the poor, the one in prison. (laughs) So he walks down the line and what he's saying is how you treat these kinds of people is how you treat me. And that has nothing to do with the right words or the right doctrine or anything. And so even that Matthew 20, that, that sheep and goats passage is still so much bigger than Strobel made it out to me. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Stephen. Forgive me. No, that's good. I was going to go off in another direction that might not be at all interesting, but I was just talking about, I, and I was just thinking about how it, it is kind of a thing in other cultures to think about ages and how there's a theme for a certain age, right? When an emperor in Japan, uh, when a new emperor uh, comes to power, even though these days it's not really power, but comes to the representative station of the emperor, the whole, <laughs> the whole society gets a new theme for that age, uh, in quotation marks, it gets a new name, like the age of peace or the age of uh, love or of unity or something like that. And it, the years restart. So year one of Rewa, year two of a different age, right? So different society in the U S we don't really think we, we just say the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, right. But in other countries, other cultures, they really do think in ages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's right. And that John three sixteen passage, it, you know, it can seem to read for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the way most English Bibles translate that, you know, it seems the contrast seems to be 
eternal life versus perishing, which is why annihilationists or conditional immortality people turn to that verse. But what I discovered is when you read the passage in the in the original Greek and you see the present tense verbs which are there in the there's a, like the concordant literal version does this. Basically, you you end up God gave His Son, and everyone who has believed in Him is receiving eternal life, and everyone who hasn't believed is 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 experiencing destruction. So again, it's like the kingdom of God thing that you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God loves the world. God sends his son. The ones who are the receiving ones are receiving now that eternal life, the kingdom of God, however you want to put that. They are the receiving ones. And the ones who are not receiving that are the perishing ones. So it just, again, it's that lens. That's yeah. it's, those, it's the lens that you have when you're looking at, uh, when you're looking at all of these things. And, and I love that, that, verse because that word believe is a progressive word it doesn't mean like a one-time thing it, it means progressively believing <laughs> and yeah. so that ties it all together with the word perish because it's like well today i died a little bit because i wasn't believing the word of god <laughs> you know so you bring that all together and i love that whole chapter because he starts out by saying i did not come into the world to judge it but to save it so he either fails or he succeeds and then he goes on to say, those who don't believe are dead already because uh, their deeds were evil and they didn't want to step into the light. The funny thing about that is the reason they didn't step into the light is because they didn't believe God was good and they were afraid of him. And Jesus already said, I'm not here to judge you. So that whole passage is so interesting. He's like, dude, they just won't come to me because they have a bad view of God. All right. Let's continue on with the conclusion of Strobel, well, at least the the, the ones that I summarize from the chapter, uh, Strobel concludes, so where does all of this leave us? With the traditional view of hell, which should chasten us and motivate us to tell as many people as we can that there is indeed a judgment, but there is also a divinely ordained escape route. That is the gift of eternal life that God freely offers to everyone who will receive it in repentance and faith. Stephen, how do you respond to that? comment by strobel uh yeah so basically uh, when he's saying it should chasten us and motivate us it's true that everlasting torment as a motivation for mission can certainly be compelling but also it's incredibly depressing as you know that many people who have already died have no further opportunities right any soul you help save is a soul that will still exist in a universe that contains unending pain for some and everlasting sin and i i'm thinking of japan again there Christianity has not caught on in Japan. It's like 1% across all denominations, like including Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholics. That's like, it's like 1% all that. That's 1% of Japan is any different kind of thing that could sociologically be labeled Christian, right? And at least part of the reason seems to be because they honor their ancestors quite a bit. And if you love your ancestors and your ancestors are automatically condemned in the message that's coming and being presented to you, then you will say, this can't be true. My grandfather is not in fire forever. That sounds insane. <laughs> I have his picture over here. And I love this man. And I loved this man when he was alive. And I, I even loved him even if I wasn't alive when he was alive because of the stories my mom has told me or whatever, right? And if you bring a message where you say that the people that they love, who are real people, are tortured forever, that will just be an automatic, uh, I think you're wrong. And I think that's fake. <laughs> All right, Scott, what would you add to that. That was a really good word, by the way. I didn't know that, but that's an excellent analogy. Um, 
but I think that's an analogy that crosses all time. Like the one, the one part of the chapter that got me, and I understand why. When I say got me, I don't think Lee Strobel was terrible or I'm not mad at him. It just, I get where he's coming from. But one, that's like, so the salvation of humanity, God left that up to me to share the right message at the right time, at the right place. Like God left that up to me. I mean, that's, that's a ton of pressure, but he, he ended up, and I, forgive me if you're going to talk about this, but I wrote this down. Remember when he, he made that comment about pseudo evangelism and then he, he starts he starts naming all the people who will get another chance. <laughs> like they will get another chance. He was basically saying anyone before Christ will get another chance and people who are out of their minds or whatever. Right. And I, I sat there listening to that being like, dude, you're a universalist, man. <laughs> like, you don't even know it. You're a universalist because time is so much different to God than it is to us. And I think a lot of this comes from dispensationalism where it's just, you can track it and, you know, somehow figure out when God's going to move or whatever, but time is so much different to God. And so one, I just think that's way too much pressure, but two, the pseudo evangelism, he's like, remember when he was like, well, what if they weren't presented with the real gospel? Yeah. And, and what I, you're talking about is if you read the whole chapter, there's a discussion about, there's a discussion about this in the yeah. book. And I think it was tied to what he said with why are we, you know, we need to go out and save people from hell. But then he says like the pseudo, well, so which, which gospel is the real one? The Calvinist one, you know, like which gospel is the real one? And so I'll just, I'll just give you a quick story. I went to an Eastern Orthodox church in the, the, when I had a Sunday off and actually the, pa the priest wasn't there, the father, they brought in another guy <laughs> and he, he shared this message about how he did a funeral for a suicide victim. And in Greek Orthodoxy, you can only do, you can only bury them properly if they were out of their minds, if they committed suicide. Okay. And then he said, and then he said, so we always bury suicide victims properly because if you were going to kill yourself, you're not in your right mind. Right. <laughs> so I, that was an amazing word for me because we're, none of us are in our right mind. All of us are delusioned. All of us grew up in different cultures, different uh, everything, which was to Stephen's point. And so which which gospel, which pure gospel are we ever giving or, or accepted or whatever? You know, so there's too many factors in that when Strobel talks about us having to go out and save people and also like, you know what, some people might get another chance. It It just was so convoluted that I think what he was actually doing was actually proving universalism that some people in Japan have heard a false gospel. And when they stand before him, I don't even think they're going to hear the gospel. They're going to see the gospel because the gospel is not a doctrine. It's a person. And so when he walked through that, I actually had hope. I was like, dude, Lee Strobel's not that far off. He's not that far off because he's walking through all these different things that don't really make sense when you think about them. And so no, I don't know if if anyone ever hears the pure gospel of Jesus Christ outside of what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, first and foremost, this is it. So I actually thought he, one, proved it's way too much pressure to, to be the savior of people um, and have to relay this right message to them. Um, but also that he went on to admit a ton of people might get another chance. So I thought he kind of shot himself in the foot there. But I also think it came from a really good heart because he really wants people to know Jesus. <laughs> well, again, there's a lot of use of the word tradition. You know, where does this leave us? 
in he says with the traditional view of hell and that kind of seems to be the answer that i get a lot from at least evangelical folks is that well this is the traditional view but the irony of that is is that when i was first around these folks what they always said is we don't go by tradition we go by the we go by the scriptures but whenever you talk about hell all of a sudden it's all about tradition well this is what this is what the tr- the tradition is when i think of tradition i think of okay well let's go back to way what was the earliest way that that people handled this issue well the earliest tradition of the church was to let this be a matter of opinion and to not get divided over it and to affirm more fundamental issues and then to let people have their own ideas about it and so the tradition of the church is basically to let people have their different opinions about it and to understand that the idea that God would restore the whole creation was was a perfectly acceptable and allowed opinion. That's the tradition. Yeah, and it just looked different. Um, you, you mentioned the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Here's what's funny. Strobel and them will comment on that. At the Fifth Ecumenical Council, they said Mary is the mother of God and she should be prayed to. <laughs> Why don't they accept that? Why, yeah, that's in the heard- language. They yeah, said well, that she throw a that out. Virgin, virgin too, right? They said she was a perpetual virgin yeah. in that council. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to say yeah. that her heresy was condemned in that council, then you better start praying to Mary too. And and also, if you're going to go by tradition, basically the tradition ended up being the Fifth Ecumenical Council plus the imperial anathemas that that were passed around that time. That ended up becoming the tradition. So the tradition is, for all purposes, eternal conscious torment. Right, but what's what, what's interesting then is if you we didn't cover this, but they they talk about annihilationism or conditional immortality as well, and what they say about that is it's it's kind of a minor deviation. It's not, you know, it's not close to heresy. It's not it's not anywhere near as suspect or deviant as the universal reconciliation is. But if you're going to go by tradition, you would need to be as severe towards, I would think the annihilation position as you would as a universal restoration position, because in those imperial anathemas, what was the language there is about the unending suffering of the demons and the, you know, and the damned. And so to me, that explains an awful lot is that basically what we inherited in Western civilization was a theological tradition that, developed in Western Christianity based upon a Latin kind of understanding of things and Augustine and all of that. But the, the thing is, is that people lived with it so long that they stopped, they, they, they failed what they think that Christianity is the Western Christian tradition. Yeah. But Christianity had, you know, like 500 years before what we would think of as the Western Christian tradition really started coming into view. So, what I'm saying is let's go back to the real tradition. Let's go back yeah. to the real early church and and look at these. And, and I think that's maybe one reason why some people are afraid to have people look into early church history and the early church fathers, because if you start looking into those figures, you're going to find a lot of talk about Christian univer- Christian what we would call Christian universalism. So then the, the tradition is that this was a live topic and there was a lot of there was a lot of interest in it. And there were a lot of people that believed in a universal restoration in the early centuries. Yeah. And they, they always quote Tertullian, too. And Tertullian 
is not an early church father. Like he didn't lead a church as far as I know. Is that true? I, I mean, I've, I don't think he led a church or anything like that. He was just a guy who was around. So they latch onto that. And even Augustine too, Augustine, he was definitely a genius. I mean, very smart city of God is an amazing piece of literature, but the last 10 years of his life didn't, they kind of went off the rails there. So, you know, they've hold they've held on to a lot of those traditions. And I love when he said Polycarp. Remember that quote he said from Polycarp, where when Polycarp was about to get martyred, he said, Bring it on and God's gonna torture you forever. When I heard that quote, and I've heard it before, that's not Christ-like. I don't care who I don't care who Polycarp is, meaning like he's a stud and he's apostle of John, love him. But on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them so they don't know what they do. He didn't say, I'm going to burn you for all eternity. So I don't even look to Polycarp. I look to Jesus. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. There's a lot that's in this, that, that is in this book by uh, Strobel. And we've talked about a lot of it. But I guess what I'd like to do now is just to ask for any general comments or observations about the way Strobel and Copan went about making their case against Christian universalism. Let's see, uh, Stephen, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Sure. Uh, yeah, I should say again, though, that this we're talking mainly about like just two chapters in a book that I think had more than 10, maybe 10, 11 chapters. And so <laughs> there are a lot of things in the book that you can go, oh, yeah, they're talking about the importance of believing in uh, life after death, the importance of Jesus dying to save us, the importance of, of faith in God. But um, there are some things... In there that are inter interesting to me anyway was that when they talked to Scott McKnight, who I love to read, um, who's an evangelical scholar, biblical scholar, and he actually sort of made the case that he does think um, at least pets. I don't know if he was open to all animals, but at least pets, it, it could be that they're in heaven. And you think, well, how much does God love the sparrows, right? Um, he loves us more. If they're making the case, at least tentatively, that pets could be in heaven, we are not. We are more loved than the sparrows, which I take to be representative of other animals as well. So I understand why they would be hesitant about universalism. It's true that it hasn't been popular for a number of years. And it's true that when you first hear about it, at least to me, the hang up was postmortem repentance, right? I wanted a verse that said, people can repent after they die. And there isn't a verse that says people can repent after they die. Not, not like that anyway. But when you piece a lot of verses together, it's just the thing that makes the most sense, especially with the all verses, with the, the way that the world, the whole world will be saved, that the kings will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem with its ever open gates um, mm -hmm. in Revelation after they've been the enemies uh, for so many chapters. I think that Strobel, like Scott said, who he does believe in uh, post-mortem opportunities for at least some people, I think he should expand that out a little bit and uh, keep thinking about how God's love for everybody doesn't quit. All right, Scott, what would you have to say in kind of wrapping things up? Well, one, he commented on Preston Sprinkle and Francis Chan's book, Erasing Hell, often. And they, they have both renounced a lot of those things that they wrote. Okay. Like, Preston Sprinkle has basically now said universalism is definitely not heresy. You know, he's an annihilationist, it sounds like. So he's he's even recanted a lot of that. And even Francis Chan, because remember that story where he talked about how he was so afraid of his grandma dying and now she's in hell. Well, yeah. even Francis Chan has changed his tune. And it's obvious that he's been kicked out of Calvinism and he's on a journey. And he admitted the word eternal does not mean eternal like we know it. So I just want to make that clear because he kept quoting that one book, but more has happened since that book came out. 
And the bottom line is, I guess, fire, you know, the word fire and brimstone too. Brimstone is a healing agent in the Middle East. It's a healing agent. So there's more to all of that, even in Revelation. And obviously we could do eight podcasts on Revelation. But I just want to say this, you know, when it says his ways are higher than our ways, evangelicals always make that of being like, you know what? We just can't understand it. If you read that whole chapter, it's about God's grace. God's grace is so much bigger and so much higher we just can't even comprehend it. And so that's why I think the universalist position takes so much standing, not just from the Bible and the early church fathers, but even just logically, it just makes more sense. And he made a comment, and this is my last statement, but that universalism is in the minority. Well, that might be true now, but when is truth ever in the majority? When? Name it. When is truth ever in the majority? Because as soon as the majority believes it, they they change it and, and contort it to make the majority in power is what they do. That's just human history. So that didn't bug me when he said, oh, it's in the minority. Because I'm like, well, one thing I know about Jesus from the Old Testament is they got their Messiah wrong. They thought he was going to be a Messiah in the order of Moses, or excuse me, a Levite. He was a Messiah in the order of Melchizedek who wasn't the bloodline of the Levites. He was a mysterious figure and he was a spiritual king above everything else. So I believe, I believe the same way the Jews were surprised at their Messiah because they thought their Messiah was going to kick some Roman butt and make Israel number one again. A lot of, most evangelical Christians are going to be very surprised that Jesus loves a good surprise <laughs> and he loves to make things way bigger and way more awesome than we can ever imagine. And so at the end of revelation, I believe in the lake of fire, all that stuff, but I believe the lake of fire is the false self. He is going to kill the false self in me. He's going to kill the false self in everyone. So the real image of God can shine in the new kingdom and her gates are never shut and the spirit and the bride say come. So no matter where people land on this, all I can say is her gates are never shut and the spirit and the bride say come. Well, one of the things that, that I kept thinking about is as sort of listening to them quote different verses in their reasoning about things is that it just seemed like there wasn't a lot of logical coherence that mm -hmm. was going it was real on. that was a really confusing couple chapters because they would describe hell in one way and then describe it in another way, and then say, not everyone's going to get in, but some of these people will get another chance. It was just a really confusing way to describe some of that. And then they get into Martin Luther. And I'm like, like I said to you guys, are we going to cancel Luther now? Because he believes that or what? You know, like, but I will give Copan some credit. He did say there are a lot of good Christians who can be universalists. So I got to give him credit for that. Okay. Yeah. That was, that was nice. So we were, it was, yeah, but that was an example of, yes, you can be a genuine Christian and be a universalist, but Christian universalism is deviant and dangerous. Well, so, I'll at least start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, and there is a, there was a, you know, they critiqued, uh, they mentioned David Bentley Hart's book that all shall be saved, but then they just dismissed it because they said that his, they didn't like his tone. Um, I don't but either. To me, but uh, so, but but for me, kind of what's missing here is where is the where is the logical coherence to what we're to what we are saying? And I think in times past, you know, when Christianity was dominant, 
and you really couldn't doubt all of these things. It didn't really matter how much it made sense. It was just so powerful and so scary to people, you know, that you just kind of go along with it. And then you're taught, well, it doesn't even make sense because God's ways are higher than our ways. So you shouldn't even try to make sense out of it. And so a lot of Christianity just becomes very kind of nonsensical. It's just not like philosophical coherence or logical coherence isn't just isn't important. And when I looked at how these couple of chapters were argued, that's kind of what I, it was it, like you were saying, it was kind of all over the place. There were arguments that were going lots of different directions. And what I like about David Bentley Hart, even if you think he can be severe, is that his logic works, Absolutely. that there's a logical coherence to it. And to me, I think that that younger people especially are much more suspicious of something that's logically incoherent anymore. And they're just not going to go along because they're being scared. They're going to, you're going to have to show them something that's logically coherent, something that is good. And if you can show them that, you know, I think they might, they might be willing to, to listen to it. And so what's ironic to me is that Lee Strobel has spent so much time in his life trying to help people see that there are good reasons to believe in Christianity, to believe mm -hmm. that Jesus, you know, to believe in Jesus and that the basic story of Christianity and his death and resurrection and the promise of life that is in him. But what he's doing is he's simultaneously then shutting the door on people mm -hmm. by trying to, by, by saying, oh, well, this, you know, you can believe in this, but don't believe that God is in the business of saving everyone or that Jesus is actually the savior of the world. Because if you do that, then, you, well, you can still be a Christian, but you're a deviant and dangerous one. So yeah. that's not a very, that's not a very good invitation, I guess I would say. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, what's the better invitation? You sinned, but God loved you so much that you, he defeated the enemy that brought you into that disaster or God loves you so much. If you don't come to him, he's going to burn you for all eternity. <laughs> what's the better, what's, what's the better presentation on who God is and what love is. All right, Stephen, we'll kind of end with, uh, why don't you kind of give us your final thoughts here and then we'll kind of wrap, start wrapping these things up. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. Um, like you guys said, the, probably the weaker chapters were the ones that focused on, uh, universalism and, the book does end up going back to sort of its focus on heaven near the end. Cause I mean, it's called the case for heaven, right? So the most mm -hmm. of the book is really trying to focus on heaven, but for a while there it's focusing on, we have to talk about the eternal torment because this is the flip side of heaven. But um, uh, yeah, just like I said, I think the book has a number of good things and a number of bad things. And the, one of those bad things is definitely the way that they present universalism at least they do like you said talk positively about uh, some universalists i think they had a more positive view of george mcdonald for example than yeah. tim keller yeah. did in an interview he did with john piper i don't even think he's a christian i think that guy's uh it sounded like you saying that he thinks george mcdonald's in hell but um so they were more ecumenical i guess in that way but uh you know they're still if they keep thinking about it especially since they're Copan and Strobel and they like to think very logically, yeah, I do think they, they'll become more and more open to universalism. Well, if it's the, if the trend holds true, then universalism in 20 years should be about the case where annihilationism is right now with much more openness and awareness about it. And so I appreciate what both of you guys are doing in, in helping to, I guess, show that, that one can be sincerely, 
authentically Christian and hold to a Christian universalism that's coherent and biblically sound and you know can be shown in the early centuries of the church. So I appreciate all the work that both you guys are, are doing on that and look forward to the next time we get a chance to visit. Thanks. Amen, brother. All right. Thanks again for spending the time with us. It was great. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.